Um, God, give grace. Help me now in these moments ahead that as your word goes forth, that it might encourage the hearts of all who are here. We thank you for who you are, your goodness, your everlasting mercies. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I'm going to get my, I think, I know it's not 12. Uh, We'd be in trouble. So let me get my um, little clock out here. And why don't you turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is where we want to look this morning to God's word. Pray that it will encourage our hearts. And I'm thankful for the privilege to come and um, preach the word of God to you. Um, I have been in this building um, once before, and uh, I forget when I did a retreat for you some years ago, and it's good to see some familiar faces and also some that I've never seen before. Um, I'm glad that you're here and uh, desire to hear the word of God. Uh, We know by the word of God we grow and We grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and through that, we become the people that God intended us to be, and it's good that you're here in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Um, What I do with Grace Advance, um, part of my ministry, is we help uh, plant and revitalize churches around North America, and I find that um, so often as I go to different locations around um, the country that there is a, a dire need. Uh, we recently were in the New England area, and that's really hard ground, and there's a bit of irony um, being in the New England area because you think about all the great institutions uh, that were there. They're still there, but they're no longer great. Um, they may be from an academic standpoint, but from a standpoint where they believe in the sufficiency of God's word, they believe who God truly says he is, they really aren't. And the irony is you walk around and you see uh, a place that used to be bustling with Bible-believing churches and the gospel going forth, and now that's not the case. Um, It saddens my heart sometimes, so whenever I find a place where God's word is taught, uh, that's a great encouragement to me, and I'm glad that that's true here at Cornerstone. I want us to think about something from Psalm 32 And as I introduce this message to you, I have a question for you. If I were to ask you, what is the most joyful moment in life? I mean, what might you say? I mean, there are a number of legitimate answers, I suppose. One could say, well, one of the most joyful moments in life was my engagement. I remember the time when he got down on, uh, hopefully he did it, on a knee and said, will you marry me? And you said, yes, or maybe it was your marriage day, the day that you, after having been asked to be married, you walked down the aisle or you were standing on the other end, you saw your bride coming down the aisle, you thought, this is a great day. And as I look around and I saw a, a, a lot of little kids that are here and um, some that are just newborn as well. The last time I hear it, there was a lot of kids here and there were a lot of newborns in. And I think when I come back again, guess what? Somebody finish your statement. There will be a lot of what? And a lot of newborns here as well. But that brings joy as well, right? It's a boy. It's a girl. And then you go to the hospital, and there's that sense of joy. Another child. What a blessing that is. And you can think about another occasion that brings joy. What about graduation? You work hard. You toil. uh, You go through the rigors. You stay up. You drink caffeine. You stay up late. And all of a sudden... That day comes, you walk across the podium, and they call your name, and maybe some places they don't even do that anymore because they're too large. Um, But nonetheless, you walk across, across, you've graduated. And that's a great moment of joy. And some of you, not many of you, have been, um, a few of you, married longer. We've been married 26 years. And I think about people that have been married longer than that. You know, 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. That's a milestone. You think, what joy that is to be married for so long. And as a kid growing up, um, it was a big deal. Your 16th birthday, is that still a big deal 
Any 17-year-olds here or 16-year-olds in the room? Is that a big deal? Do you look forward to that day, my 16th birthday? What's going to happen on my 16th birthday? And then all of a sudden, 18th birthday, when you think that you're an adult and you really aren't quite yet, but you think you are. And then all of a sudden, like my youngest son, he recently turned 18, and he's figuring out it's not all it's cracked up to be because now I have to start paying for my car insurance and for gas and for maintenance and for other things. And when he looks to me and says, Dad, do you have any money? Yes, I do, but it's not yours. <laughs> so he's like, Man, can I dial back the clock? 18 isn't that great. How about 15 again, you know? When it's like, hey, here you go. I'll buy it for you. It's my treat. You know, half price on me. That doesn't exist anymore. You want it, you buy it. <laughs> Those are all great moments of joy, right? But I believe we would all agree that God's forgiveness is that one moment that stands out. That is, when you experience the joy, the reality that the living God has forgiven you. When you come to grips with your sin and you realize that your life has offended God and by God's grace he opens your eyes and you realize that I have offended the living God and you cry to him and then you experience forgiveness. I mean all those other things are wonderful but there's nothing like that. Knowing that one's sins are removed from your spiritual account. Knowing that this deficit that stood against you that you could never repay is now wiped clean. And not only is the deficit gone, but now to your account is now the, the righteousness of Christ is now given to you, reckoned to you, imputed to you. Forgiveness. That should bring joy. It should bring joy that you know that the living God has forgiven you. And you may still battle with sin, and sometimes you may even succumb to its sort of alluring ways, but yet a person who is genuine, who is sincere, who cries out to the Lord and says, God, forgive me, there is relief. When a person is genuine and they show genuine repentance and they confess their sins because God is a gracious God that is both willing and able to forgive and desires to forgive, there's relief. Forgiveness, that's a blessed state to know that one is forgiven, that I don't have to face all the final, I don't have to face any final consequences of my sin, that God can remove guilt and shame. He can remove at times the misery. He can remove a, a conscience that is bothering you because you know you've done something wrong, then when one forgives, there's relief that comes with it. And not simply relief, but then there's joy, which we'll even learn from this passage. And I'm believing that Psalm 32 will remind you of this joy that comes with forgiveness. It's also going to warn you not to hide your sin, and it will also provide a practical advice, that is, practical advice and how you can experience the blessing of forgiveness. This morning, I want us all to hear this. And there may be some here that hear my voice, whether you hear now, you hear it later, that you need to come to that first point of forgiveness. That is, you have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is, you have not yet bowed your heart and says, God, forgive me, my life has offended you Will you take away my sin? Now, Psalm 32 is included in um, seven penitential psalms. And we say penitential psalms, psalms where the psalmist is crying out, saying, God, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? You see that in Psalm 6, the psalmist cries out there. In Psalm 38, you see very vividly an expression of the weight of sin that's on the psalmist in Psalm 38. Of course, very familiar to us is Psalm 51, where the psalmist cries out there that he wants the joy that he once had to be returned to him. And so he confesses his sin before the Lord and before all who would read Psalm 51. 
You see it in Psalm 102 and 130 and 143 as well, that the psalmist cries, cries out, God, will you forgive me? But yet, the psalm is more than just a psalm of, of penitence. It's also a psalm of instruction or, or called a maskil. We see these psalms like this. If you look with me at Psalm 42, Psalm 42 would be an example of it. Instruction that is given. And so in Psalm 42, the psalmist cries out, essentially, what is the instruction? That you should follow his example first, panting for God, and also follow this example of being a person who does what? He counsels himself to have hope in God. And you see that refrain in verse 5. And you see it in verse 11, and it actually carries over into Psalm 43 and to verse 5 as well. You see instruction in Psalm 44. You see it in 52 to 55. And there are other examples of psalms of instruction. Psalm 78, Psalm 88 would be another example of a psalm of instruction. But there's a third element in this psalm as well. Not only is it communicating the sense of repentance and a cry for forgiveness. Not only is it instructional, which we'll see in the psalm here, but it also has an element of thanksgiving. And that's directly related to forgiveness. God, you have forgiven me, therefore I will be thankful. How could I withhold thanksgiving from a God who has forgiven me so greatly? So it's an exhortation to even respond with thanksgiving. The psalmist is saying, I have this great joy because this God who has shown his willingness to forgive and abiding by his covenant to forgive, I have experienced it. And we see this great joy in the final verse of Psalm 32. If you turn there with me, look at Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, it says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And so this psalmist has a number of elements for us to consider. Uh, sin and the effect of sin and how one shouldn't hide their sin and they should confess it and God is willing to forgive. There's a sense in which, well, how do I go about this? So the psalmist gives instruction for us as well. And then there's thanksgiving, knowing that I have been forgiven. Oh, God, I give you thanks. I give you thanks. And so I'm proposing that in Psalm 32, there are five truths. We see five truths in this psalm concerning sin and forgiveness. And these five truths, I'm convinced that if you're here today and you want the Lord to speak to your heart, that they will encourage your faith, and I think they will inspire you to praise. These five truths about sin and forgiveness, they should encourage your faith and inspire you to praise the living God. And David helps us see this pinnacle of true happiness being forgiven by God. Let's go through the psalm, though. I want us to read through it because I want you to see some key words and, and begin to even notice a pattern, if you will, of how the psalmist communicates these great truths. Notice what he says in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whom in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice away, right away, we're going to come back to it, though. Notice transgression, sin, iniquity. Forgiven, covered, does not impute. Then in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And this is most likely um, as he has been convicted of his sin, and you see it illustrated pretty vividly in Psalm 38, if you were to pay attention to that. Then verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when he may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. 
You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or as a mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And notice how the psalm ends. He says here, glad, rejoice, shout. It began with what? He said, transgression, sin, and iniquities. Our first truth is this, number one, verses one and two, consider the blessed state of forgiveness. Just pause for a moment, consider this blessed state. So he begins the psalm by communicating this blessed state of forgiveness. Twice he's going to repeat this, the state of having one's sins forgiven by the only one who is capable of doing it. The only one who can remove the stain and guilt and final consequences of sin is the Lord. And so the psalmist is convinced, David is convinced, convinced this is a blessed state. The emphasis is obvious. So how blessed or truly blessed or assuredly blessed is what he is saying here. And there is a sense in which this blessed state is throughout the psalmist. Let me give you a no, number of examples of it. So we're going to talk about this blessed state in the psalm. Psalm 1-1, um, those who don't walk in the with the wicked are blessed. Psalm 2-12, those who take refuge in God are blessed. Right here in Psalm 32-1, whose sins are forgiven are blessed. And 33-12, the nations who make God their Lord, they will be blessed. Psalm 34 and 8, it says that we should taste and see that the Lord is good. And he reminds them that that is a blessed state when you taste God, when you experience God. Psalm 40 and verse 4, those who trust in the Lord, that is a blessed state. He even tells us in Psalm 41 and 2, those who consider the helpless, that's a blessed state. When you consider the needs of other people, you are indeed blessed, and God will, in fact, bless you. Psalm 65, uh, what's a blessed state? It's a blessed state when one realizes that God has chosen you, and he brings you near. That's a blessed state because God says, I have chosen you, and I bring you near to me. I bring you into an intimate relationship with me. That's a blessed state. Psalm 84 and 5. What's another blessed state according to the psalmist? Those whose strength is the Lord. Because instead of relying on self and our own ingenuity and our own power, we rely on the wisdom and the insight and the divine power of God. Psalm 89 and 15. Those who walk in view of God. That's a blessed state. Psalm 94 and 12. Here's another blessed state that one may not think about it. You don't hear this preached often. What's another blessed state? Well, the others make sense. Yes, of course, don't walk in the wicked. God is our refuge. He forgives our sins. If God is our God, it only makes sense. When we trust in him, that makes sense. He chooses us and he draws us near. Of course, yes, that's a great state to be in. When God is our strength, when we walk in view of God, of course. But what about Psalm 94 and 12? It says, the man is blessed whom God chastens. So wait a minute. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Yes, the chastening of God is a blessed state because in that chastening, God, like a perfect and wise father, is teaching his children the way in which they should go. And he, in that chastening at times, is chasing away, if you will, some of those things that hinder us walking in a relationship with God that is closer and is more intimate. So, of course, if anything is going to make me be more like Christ, I would have to conclude that that is a blessed state. But in order for us to be more like Christ, God has to often actually chasten us because we at times may gravitate towards the past or towards the world or towards things that are not like Christ. So what's a blessed state? Psalm 106, 
those who practice justice, 112, those who fear the Lord, 119, those who walk in his law, 127, many of you are blessed because it says in 127.5, the man who has a full quiver is blessed of the Lord. Well, I'm blessed. I have five kids. My um, dad and mom were blessed. They had eight kids, and we can keep going. I met a family when I was in Alberta, Canada. Uh, we were a new Grace Advanced Church there, and, and wonderful. They had nine kids. I said, you're doubly blessed. But, of course, if you have one, if you have none, but you do all these other things, you're a blessed person. Psalm 146.5, the last one, whose help and hope is in God. That's a blessed person because I realize that he is the only one that can help me. He's the only one that can intervene in life when circumstances or persons overwhelm me. And therefore, I have a hope that is not based in what I can accomplish, but a hope that is based in what he has done and will do. It's a blessed state. And even this idea of being blessed connected to forgiveness is strategic to Paul when he wrote the book of of Romans. Look with me at Romans chapter 4. Paul realized this and is leaning on the words of the psalmist when he wrote in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, and notice, if you will, verse 6. 4, verse 6, he says, um, I'll read in verse 5, it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So Paul uses this in his argument in Romans to make a case, and that case is basically stating what? One cannot work and gain the righteousness of God. It is all based on God's favor, his divine plan, his covenant towards us. So Paul agrees that this is a wonderful state. Now, some translations, if you go back to Psalm 32, when it says how blessed, some translations will actually say, well, how happy is the man? And happy is appropriate if we realize that it's not simply talking about a feeling, but it's a state of mind based on one standing before the Lord. If I realize that, I can say that's a happy state, even in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we could say, well, happy is the man who... Or we might say, some translations will obviously say, well, blessed is the man who. So if we understand the sense of happiness is a state of mind based on my standing before the Lord, and if I'm a person, when I have sin, I can go to God and say, forgive me. And here's the thing about it. Um, all of us at some point in time have gone to the Lord multiple times. It's not as if there is a particular area in your life and you've gone to the Lord and you've asked, Lord, forgive me. <sighs> I'm glad I'll never have to do that again. We find ourselves there again and sometimes again and sometimes again. And a person is really sensitive to the things of the Lord. I think at some point in time, one may wonder, oh, here I am again, Lord. And you want that to end. And you want that to be the last time you confess that sin. And shouldn't we all be thankful that our God is a gracious God, but he's also a patient God who is waiting for our development, that we be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice Psalm 32.1. I mentioned before, three, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here in verses one and two, you notice this um, use of three. So we see three expressions of sin 
that are also counted with three expressions of forgiveness. The first word, transgression. It's important that we understand these words so we can see the intensity of what David is communicating. So how blessed is he whose transgression. This word transgression is an intense word. Um, it has a sense of spiritual rebellion, and it has implications of full knowledge. So if we think about that, so this word in the Hebrew means spiritual rebellion against God, full knowledge. And if we look at this account and conclude that it has to do with David and his sin with Bathsheba, it's clearly that it was a sinful act of rebellion, and he did it with full knowledge. Because, of course, what happens in the narrative? David sees Bathsheba. He calls for her. He seduces her. He tempts Uriah to violate his conscience and his sense of loyalty. He determined in his heart that Uriah must die. He crafts a letter to be sent by Uriah himself. He sends Uriah with the letter. He involves Joab in his sin, and he attempts to hide his sin. All of that is rebellion, and it's done with full knowledge. It's different from one that may at times, uh, uh, without anticipating violating God's law, we stumble and we fall. It, perhaps one way to illustrate it would be the difference between someone that is convicted of premeditated murder and manslaughter. In the heat of the moment, one may in a fit of rage do something that was not actually intended, but the result is the same. A life is lost. As opposed to a person that says, I despise that person. I'm going to plot out their murder. This is what I'm going to do. And as a matter of fact, uh, because I don't want the blood literally on my hands, I'll hire someone else out to do it. And I'll pay them. And I'll make sure that they can't connect it to me. So I'll involve another person that will be involved in it. And this is David. In that moment when he saw it, he could have walked away, but he didn't. And the moment when he realizes, no, she's pregnant, she, he could have stopped, but he didn't. Then he realizes, how do I cover this up? So Uriah, and how do I cover it up? So Joab, and how do I cover it up? I'll hide it. At some point in time, he could have stopped, but he didn't. He continued to go on with full knowledge. So when David uses the word, uh, he's not just pulling the word out of the air. He's re realizing his sin, and he's very purposeful and says, I rebelled against God, and I did it with a full knowledge. But, oh, wow, he forgave me. The strong word, he forgave me. This language is important. This language is important, and let me say this. It's important that we use the language that God uses. So he says, also, I sinned, if we go back to it, it's forgiven, and then my sin is covered. So he just uses a basic word that just means to cover, to um, look past, and it has this sense of being very intentional. God intentionally forgave God also, when I sinned, although it was intentional, God intentionally forgave me. And then he uses another word, iniquity. And, and this word is, is intense as well. It has this idea, literally in the sense of something that's sown crooked, is what it's communicating. It's a, it's a conscious effort to do wrong. It has an emphasis on guilt and liability. And think about it, when we say something is iniquitous. Uh, and what are we saying? It's a statement of just how heinous it is. And that's just how heinous his sin was. And no wonder he writes with this sense of joy and happiness because he realizes that his sin is so awful. And it's important that we use the language that God uses. What do I mean by that? Um, David's words are strong words. I mean, in society, society is rebranding sin. It wants to make it more acceptable. So we don't use words like David is using here, transgression and sin and iniquity. Uh, we use words and we make it more acceptable to the ear and to the eye and to the conscience. It really is what's being communicated. So we don't talk about adultery. We say affair. We say a person is simply making a lifestyle choice. 
this person has a sexual addiction. And, and a part of the reason even to use this word sexual addiction is to now say it really is something that is beyond him. They have a same-sex attraction. It's not a lust. And so what happens is we begin to use the language of the world, and when we use the language of the world, it doesn't have the spiritual power or force of what God has already spoken. So we have to speak as God speaks. And we know what is happening in society today. The world looks at us, and when we use the language of the scripture, they see us, and they look at us, and they deride us because they say, you're people who are intolerant, and you're unloving. You don't understand. No, we do understand. But what we understand is this. Let's speak as God speaks so that we can have spiritual power when we present the gospel to people. I was a um, very popular person that has now professed Christ recently and is having um, Sunday services now. And uh, he had one recently, and I was talking with my son about it. And he had, uh, and I know the person who has been ministering to him, and, and we've talked about it a little bit. And, uh, and on this occasion, someone else preached the gospel at a location in Southern California, um, and 16,000 people there. And my younger son and I, we sat and we listened to the message itself. It was about 13 and a half minutes. And we began to talk about, okay, what did you hear? And the one thing I said to him, why is he so afraid to use the word sin? This preacher that was brought, why is he so afraid to say you have rebelled against God? Everything that he said was about, you're there, and he looked up in the stands, you're there, and you're hurting right now, and life is difficult for you right now. You're over there, and maybe someone has hurt you, and you're going through trials and difficulties, and Christ is here. And I thought, what's, what's the problem with saying what God said? Is it truly a gospel message if you don't say what God said? And so at the end of it, when you say, come to Christ, the question is, what am I coming to? Is, is what, am I coming to someone that's just going to take away my difficulties? Or am I coming to someone that's actually going to forgive my transgressions and my sins and my iniquities? And we went back and forth for about half an hour, and we listened to it again, and we listened to a portion again. I said, he's afraid of saying sin. Why does he not want to say that he's rebelled against God? You have rebelled against God, friend. You have rebelled against God. You have rebelled against God. You are in sin right now. And then this truly makes it good news. Then when you can say, but I have news for you. There is a God. If you would come with sincerity and if you would be genuine, if you would be broken, he will forgive you. Amen? then this is the good news. Uh, and it's been said before, uh, we cannot truly understand the good news until we, we understand the bad news, that our lives are in rebellion against God. So David cries out. Notice the second truth from this text, verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Avoid the heartache of an unrepentant heart. Avoid the heartache of an unrepentant heart. Verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Silent. Isn't it interesting? Notice the play on words. Because he says here, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. And what did he say early in verse 1? Whose sin is covered. In one sense, when he says the sin is covered, God is going to be silent about your sin when you cry out for forgiveness. And here, David is saying, when I covered my sin, what happened? I wasted away. I did not speak as I should have about my sin. And wasted away, if you would look at Psalm 38, you would see what he was going through psychologically and physically when he kept sin to himself. Um, how many of you, um, and I know 
probably everyone in this room, at some point in time, you have not confessed your sin, I'll say it this way, in the timetable that you know to be true. That is, you held on to something. Maybe it was uh, an apology that should have been offered, and you went to bed and you didn't address it. Maybe there's someone that you should have sought reconciliation with that person and you didn't do it. Then what happens? What happens inside of you? Do you feel great? Do you feel wonderful? Do you have joy? Do you rejoice? Do you shout for joy? Like the psalmist says, no, you don't. You feel what? What are some words? Someone can tell me right now. I'll let you. What are some words you feel when you do that? What's the word that describes it? Hmm. Misery. Misery. That's a good word. What else might you feel when you don't? Confess your sin. Anybody else have another word? What's that? Guilt. Shame. It's a part of it. And there's something that's bothering your conscience. I've had students um, that have, you know, a semester later, an assignment that was done, and a student writes me, "Uh, Professor Hargrove, there's something I need to tell you. You remember in your quiz when you said, have you done all the reading? I said that I'd done it all, but I'd done about 90% of it. And even recently, you know, I said that I'd done 45 minutes. I really didn't do it all. And I'm just in anguish, the person said. Whatever you need to do to my grade, you can do it. And at times I've written back and I'll meet with them and I'll say, thank you for doing that. What were you feeling for that time in between the semesters. I was miserable. Miserable. Because the conscience, see, that's a good thing. And what I said to each of those students, that's a good thing, that your conscience is functioning. Be afraid when it stops functioning. Be afraid when you know you should make things right with the person and you don't make it right. Be afraid when you start to rationalize all the time and you say to yourself, well, it's their fault. They hurt me first. They were the ones that violated. And then you live in your self-righteous state. And obviously with David, that is not the case by far. Remember, transgression, it means um, that we, it's spiritual rebellion with the implication of full knowledge. And he has full knowledge and he's wasting away when he was silent about his sin. There must be confession. And notice the hand of God. Notice verse 4. He says here, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Whose hand is on David? God's loving hand of chastisement. Remember we even said in the blessed state, one was Psalm 94 and 12. Blessed is the man who the Lord chastens. And why does he chasten him? If you look at verse 12 as well, he says, blessed is the man whom the Lord teaches. So part of the chastening is actually teaching right there in the same verse. So here is an expression of God's loving hand at times when he makes us miserable. Don't deceive yourself. If you you do not have some state uh, at some point in time, on some consistent basis where you're feeling bad about your actions in your life, you may say, well, it's because I've arrived. No, it's just the opposite. And as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more, what will happen, and I think you would all agree with me, particularly those that know the Lord longer, that there may be things at some point in time, maybe it was five years ago or even ten years ago or six months ago, that didn't bother you, but now they do. There may be a tone ten years ago that didn't bother you, but now if you use that tone, you're bothered by it. There may be an attitude that didn't bother you six months ago, but now if you have that attitude, you're bothered by it. That's called growing in grace. And it's also God's hand of favor that is upon you when at times he's convicting you. And he gives this illustration, the fever heat of summer. Uh, boy, if you've ever been to the Mediterranean in the summer, it can be miserable. Um, we were there, was it two years ago now? And um, it, it's draining. It can be. And this is the image that he's giving here. And I can think about me growing up in Florida. 
and growing up in Florida, and it was that way. Humidity, I mean, it's 90, um, 95 degrees and about 93% humidity. That's a bad combination. It just really is. And I think about it. I remember the first time I went away from Florida and I came back again. I'd been in the dry heat of California. You know, it's really not that bad when it's 100 and the humidity is really low. And some of you are saying, really? <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you on that. But I'll never forget when I went back to Florida and I, I left the airport and I was leaving the airport and I hadn't been there in three years and it's in August and you leave the airport and you walk out and this shield just hits you and you just feel it. And you're waiting there for maybe the cab to come or the shuttle to take you to the rental car place and you're just saying to yourself, why am I here? <laughs> well, your family's there and that's a good reason, right? And there's good golf there. Well, that's two reasons. And I used to think, I can't believe it. I used to play football in this. And how did I do that? How did I, why would I do that is even the question. And there are times, I remember, I'm not kidding you, growing up, you'd just be sitting what we call the Florida room, or sort of the back room of the home, and you'd just be sitting there and you're just sweating. And you just saying, I need to go take a shower, and you've done nothing. And so David's language is saying, it's draining me. Your hand was on me. But that was a demonstration of your love to make me realize that I must repent. And that's why he has so much joy. Because even as he would say in Psalm 51, return to me the joy of your salvation, this joy would return to him because God would forgive him. Notice 2 Samuel 12 and 13. I'll just read it. It says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. You deserve death. And so when he writes Psalm 32, this is a man that's saying, I've been forgiven. I understand my sin. I understand the misery of a conscience that's not responding to God. But God has given me life instead of death. Here's a third truth. Notice verse 5. Know the blessing of acknowledging sin. Know the blessing of acknowledging sin. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, there's another translation, the Net Bible. I really like it a lot, particularly in the Old Testament. It reads this way. It says, then I confess my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord, and then you forgave my sins. Selah, pause, consider, take into account the fact that God is a forgiving God. And notice here in verse Five, he goes back to his three, his formula of three again. Notice sin, iniquity, and transgressions. But what has he done? He simply reversed the order. Before it was transgression, sin, um, and then iniquity. Now he says sin, iniquity, and transgression. So he reminds himself and his readers of his sins again. So he simply just does this for effect. He says, I didn't hide it. Again, he's playing on the words. When I was silent, this is what happened. But when I covered it, uncovered it, you forgave. Because God forgave. The guilt of my sin. Very strong language it's using here. But what else can we learn from this text? Notice the fourth truth. Heed the instruction to repentant sinners. That's verses 6 through 10. Heed the instruction. So here's this instructing part of the psalm. The first thing that we should heed is this, verses 6 and 7. Know, first know that God is your protector. Notice verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when he may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. So what the first thing we should notice is just this transitional marker, therefore. So in view of you being a forgiving God, therefore, let me instruct you is what he's saying. This is what you should learn. 
Those of you that are sinners, those of you that at times um, transgress as I transgress, heed this advice. And notice the advice. And let me read again from the Net Bible. Verse 6 reads this way. So instead of, therefore, it says, for this reason, every one of your faithful followers should pray to you while there is a window of opportunity. Certainly, when the surging water rises, it will not reach you. So notice the difference here. Uh, the NASB says, when you may be found, the net says, a window of opportunity. And I actually like that window of opportunity because we use that language, don't we? We say, well, there's a window of opportunity, and if one doesn't take advantage of it, what's going to happen to the window? It will be what? It will be closed. So what does he mean by this? He's saying, when God is moving upon your conscience, don't allow time to keep passing, he says. When that fever heat of summer comes to you, respond to the gracious hand of God because that window of opportunity may close on you and then you face more consequences than you would have had you just repented. And we see that often with people. And we probably, I'm sure we have some history in our own life when we can say, you know what, I really should have come to you sooner. I'm wondering, why did I wait? And now the consequences are greater. How many times over the years have I talked to someone and they finally come to me and I say, friend, why didn't you come sooner? And now it costs them what? Their marriage. Why didn't you come sooner? Now you're disqualified from ministry. Why didn't you come sooner? And the list can go on and on and on. There's a window of opportunity, he said. But he says, notice what he says, the godly ones will pray to you. Wait a minute, hold on. The godly one, you just told us David is a man that uh, commits adultery, essentially sets up the murder of one of his own faithful men. How is he a godly man? Well, here's the reality, because we're all still battling our sin. We can all still stumble and fall, and Scripture says, even in many ways. But the godly person is the one who recognizes the hand of God and, like a David, confesses his sin and says, God, forgive me. And they see that window of opportunity and realize, let me go through that window while it's still open. The ungodly person responds with pride self-righteousness, and then, if you will, that window can close and they face many consequences for their action. Look with me at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, if you will. Isaiah 55, and it says, um, verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you will not run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Notice then verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And then what does he say in verse 7? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will do what? Notice the end of verse 7. He will abundantly pardon. And of course, this is the context to a very familiar um, two verses that we often refer to, either paraphrase it or in some other way. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, because my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. So if you look at it in context, what he's saying is, I am a God that is compassionate, and if you would just come to me while I'm there, I will forgive you. That makes no sense to you as a human being. Because our default button is payback. It is not like God, compassion and forgiveness and covering and patience. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. That's why he would say, even in Isaiah 55, that you can come without money and without cost, buy food. Wait a minute, without money, without cost? Yes, because the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for it all. That's beyond your ways. That's beyond your thoughts. 
So what a blessed state to know that this is a God that we serve, that if we would just come to him and confess, he forgives. It speaks so much to who he is. Go back to Psalm 32. We can also, not only is he our protector, because he also communicates that he is our hiding place, a thought that we see in Psalm 27 and 31 and 91, God is our hiding place, but it's also this reality. God is also our counselor. You see that in verses 8 through 10. God is also our counselor. Notice what he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, it will not come to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, will surround him. And so notice he goes back to the three again. What's the three here? The three is instruct, teach, and counsel. And he's going to do it with the sense of intimacy, he says. My eye is going to be upon you. So that's the positive statement. Then the negative is in verse 9, don't be like a horse or a mule. And sometimes these sort of uh, word pictures are difficult for us that are more urban people. Um, Highly unlikely that any of you have ever worked with a stubborn mule before, right? Is anyone in the room that's done it before? I didn't think so. Um, But nonetheless, we know what happens uh, when a mule can be a very difficult animal. And if they determine that they are not going to move, they're not going to move. And even with the horse as well, a horse that's not broken, if they're not going to move, they're not going to do it. And even when it's broken, they still need something that's placed in their mouth to do what? Pull them in a certain direction. We simply can't say to the horse or to the mule, would you just veer to the right a bit? Or would you reverse yourself? Would you stop galloping? We can't do it. It requires something that says, oh, let me pull on you because you don't have understanding. And he said, don't be so stubborn. I mean, that's just the plain sense of the matter. Don't be so stubborn. And in your stubbornness, there's a price you're going to pay that you don't quite realize. Don't be so stubborn. Make things right. Don't wait. Don't have to be pulled to do the right thing. You know the right thing. Now act on it. That's really all that he's communicating here. Because the the truth is um, really pronounced, if you will, look with me at Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. This truth comes out another way in the Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verse 3 says, A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of what? What does he say? Back of fools. Why? Because the fool is then likened to the horse that's not broken, and he's likened to the donkey who is stubborn because they don't want to heed God's word, and what you may have to do for them is a rod to correct them. And God has a divine rod. All of us have been under it at some point in time. And the question is, we want to make sure that those times where God has had to put his rod on our lives, fewer and in between. That's thoroughly biblical. God chastens every son whom he receives. And just like um, (laughs) recently, um, I'll just tell the story because it's helpful. Um, Joanna was visiting with her mom just the other day. She's wondering, okay, which one is this? Uh, and um, we, mo- her mom was asking for updates on the kids. And, you know, we have five and one is uh, with the Peace Corps. She's teaching English in the Ukraine. I have the twins that are Marines. And we're in between. One is in Hawaii and one is in North Carolina. And then we have the two high schoolers and one that just turned 18. He drove this morning, his sister to church, and he's going to drive back. And, you know, she's 16. And. So mom is asking about Justin, and he's a good kid and a lot of talent, musical talent, very talented in that way. He leads the high school um, band at, at Grace Church, and she said, well, how is he doing, was the story. And she said, you know, she said, he, he really seemed to be turned out quite well. And she told Joanna, I was really concerned about him. 
She said, is that it? For the most, I was really concerned about him because every time we got together, it seems like Carl was in the back room with him. Uh, there was another session with him. And everyone knew that. There were times we'd be at Thanksgiving table, and they called me Mr. Consistent because that was my word. I, no, I told you to stop. Stop right now. And I guess they thought they could try me because it's Thanksgiving dinner. And there are times when I got up from, I mean, I'm eating some really nice stuffing here, right? And I got up and we went to the back room and I used the rod. And there are times we were headed up to, um, was it not Big Bear, but uh, what's it, Mammoth. And something's happening in the back in the van. And I said, you know I'll stop, right? You do know that. <laughs> Pulled over right there off the 15 or whatever it was, we had a session. The rod was used. But you know what's happened to him? He got, and we, it's no kidding, we said he got the most spanking combined of all the kids. <laughs> but there's a tenderness to him as well. He's the one that once he does something wrong, he's going to come back to you. He's the one who'll go up to his room for a moment and he'll come back down and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, this way. the results of that chastening, which was our loving hand. He didn't feel it in the moment, or he didn't think it at the moment. He definitely didn't feel it. He didn't feel it. It was great. But that was the result. And we would say to him at times, don't be like a fool. God is saying to us in his word, don't be a fool. When your conscience is bothering you, respond to it experience forgiveness instead of guilt and shame and a troubled conscience. The window of opportunity is right there, and it's a large window. It is a large window, and God is saying, here's this large window. If you would just go through the window and say, God, I have sinned against you. I have transgressed. I have sinned. I have committed something that is iniquitous. I forgive you. But here's, here's a thought. Then why does he forgive us? How is this even possible? It's what Isaiah was saying in, in Isaiah 55. Why can you come without money and without cost? You can come because the rod on the back of Christ. You can come because the nails in him. You can come because the spat, those who spit on his face. You can come because he gave up his life. You can come because by his own power, he raised himself again from the dead. This is why you can come. And this is why you look at something and say, how is this possible, this horrible man and all the things that he, he did? I've never done anything like that. I've never even thought of anything like that. I'm not even sure if I could conceive of anything like that. But then that's the beauty of God's grace, isn't it? That's why he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And that's why David can write with this sense of passion and joy because he realizes, oh my, I've been forgiven. And this last verse, look at verse 11, our fifth truth, live in the joy of God's forgiveness. Just briefly, what does he say? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Notice he goes to the three again, doesn't he? So he says, glad, rejoice, shout for joy. The psalm began with what? Here is transgression, sin, iniquity. Now here's replacement. So now I can be glad instead of having the misery of sin. I'm not wasting away anymore. Now I can rejoice because I don't have to be silent anymore. Now it can shout. Why can I shout now? Because I am indeed blessed. I am indeed happy. I am assuredly blessed, is what he states. No wonder he can write verse 11. Verse 11 is set up by everything else it said before. So if we don't use the language that God uses, verse 11 is not as poignant. 
It's not. But if I use the language that God uses, oh my, no wonder you can be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. You know, um, a great theologian, Augustine, his favorite psalm is Psalm 32. And he saw it facing death. And as he was facing death, it was on the wall near his bed. And he reminded himself in the final hours of his life that as he passes from time into eternity, that he was a blessed man because he was forgiven. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a blessed person. You're forgiven. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you sin, and you will sin, and when you stumble and fall, and you will fall in some degree, if you cry to him with sincerity, he forgives. He forgives. It's a blessed state. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us and your forgiveness. And it only comes because of Jesus Christ who has died for sinners.